Last week on Uncommon Law, bringing greater diversity to law firms is not a one-size-fits-all approach. I do think that there are unique issues that can be experienced by Black women attorneys in particular. Black women lawyers face a number of challenges beyond the color of their skin. Being uber professional in spaces because you don't want to be mistaken for the non-attorney. I think some of it is because at some point diversity came to mean white women, the promotion of white women. Black women account for just three quarters of a percent of all partners. It's hard to lean into a role when so few have a seat at the table. Especially um, as a black woman and, and this whole racial justice movement, I can understand things and see things that my clients don't see. I'm working towards a day when a black woman taking over any role uh, in a law firm or CEO in a corporation, it's just old news. You're listening to Uncommon Law, the Bloomberg Industry Group's narrative podcast about big ideas in the world of public policy and the law. I'm your host, Adam Allington. So in this, our final episode in the Black Lawyer Speak series, I wanted to take just a moment to remind listeners that the genesis of this project was conceived following the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, and others, and the wave of protests and demonstrations that followed. At the time, we were wondering how those events were impacting conversations among one of our key audiences, that is, lawyers and law firms, especially considering the industry's own lack of diversity and history of discrimination. Well, in our final episode, we're moving away from lawyers and law firms, and instead we're training our focus on judges, and more specifically, federal courts, which are the judges that get appointed by presidents and confirmed by Congress. To put it directly, America's federal judges do not reflect the country's great diversity. Research has shown that not only does this lack of diversity affect courts' decision-making, but it also has ramifications for Americans' perceptions of the legitimacy of the justice system. Our federal judiciary has not historically been terribly diverse, unfortunately. It has always suffered from a lack of reflection of the populace that it is intended to serve. Janae Nelson is the associate director of the NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund. Recent events have shown us how critical the judiciary is to holding the pillars of our democracy firm. And the diversity of the bench and the credibility of the court could not be more important as we begin to see more polarization in our society in the other branches of government. Compared to other policy goals, judicial appointments may be one area of the Trump presidency that was performed with remarkable speed and efficiency. In fact, it was something Trump bragged about specifically in the first presidential debate back in September. By the end of the first term, I'll have approximately 300 federal judges and court of appeals judges, 300, and hopefully three great Supreme Court judges. And you know one of the reasons I'll have so many judges? Because President Obama and him left me 128 judges to fill. And so here with me to talk about the president's judicial appointments and how diversity factors in is Madison Alder. She covers judicial confirmations for Bloomberg Law. Hey, Maddie, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hey, Adam, I'm doing well. Busy these days, but you know, I'm good. 
all things considered. With the Senate now switching over to Democratic leadership, that will have a big impact on the future direction of the courts, yes? It definitely could. With Democrats in control of the Senate, Republicans won't be able to delay or block appointments as they did during parts of the Obama administration. As the president mentioned in the clip you just played, that was one of the reasons why he inherited so many vacancies. But we should note that the actual number of vacancies Trump inherited was about 106, not 128. So Maddie, before we get into looking at why bringing more diversity into the court is important, what did the appointment process look like under President Trump? So President Trump, with the help of the Republican-led Senate, managed to make more than 230 federal judicial appointments. That includes 174 district court confirmations, 54 appeals court confirmations, and three Supreme Court justices. Altogether, that accounts for about one in four federal judges who were appointed by Trump. And that's a pace that's far higher than we've seen by other recent presidents. For instance, Presidents Bush and Obama averaged roughly 164 appointments in each of their two terms, including two Supreme Court justices for each. And how do those judges compare to the ones that were appointed under other presidents? So beyond the speed uh, with which Republicans have prioritized judicial appointments, the thing that's really upset many legal advocacy groups is how few women and minorities are among those appointments. At the district court level, Trump made 174 judicial appointments, of which only 17% were non-white and about 7% were black. That compares to about 37% of Obama's appointees being people of color. At the appeals court level, Trump made 54 appointments, with zero black judges and 20% women. Trump will leave office as the first president uh, since Nixon to not have appointed a black person to the federal appellate judiciary. And as Janae Nelson says, the racial and gender makeup of the federal bench plays a role that goes beyond the ability of judges to call legal balls and strikes. If we think about the fact that they are predominantly white males, um, we know that we are entrenching a particular set of viewpoints, a particular outlook, a particular um, uh, conservatism that will endure on the court well beyond Trump's lifetime and, and well beyond many of ours. And that is deeply concerning. Today, people of color make up roughly 26% of all active federal judges, of which 13% are Black. And Nelson says the fact that these are lifetime appointments means it will become even harder to bring diversity to the federal bench. I know I've been throwing a lot of percentages and numbers out there, but I've just got one more that I think really drives home how much of an impact President Trump has made on the courts. Out of a total of 824 federal judges, approximately 28 percent, more than a quarter, were appointed by Trump. Wow, that's just a really big number. Madison Alder covers the judiciary for Bloomberg Law. You can follow her on Twitter at Maddie Alder. That's A-L-D-E-R. Thanks so much, Maddie. You're welcome, Adam. Happy to do it. We should note here that one area where President Trump's diversity numbers are actually better than his predecessors is with Asian American judge appointments. But others note that making the federal judiciary more white, just as the nation is moving in the opposite direction, hurts the court's perception of legitimacy in the eyes of the population those courts serve. If the composition of our courts gets too far out of step with the composition of the nation, that will erode that trust, that faith, 
in the courts. And that is a danger that I think we must avoid, but it's also a danger that we can avoid. If you didn't recognize that voice, Eric Holder served as U.S. Attorney General in the Obama administration. These days, he's a partner at Covington in Berlin, an international law firm headquartered in Washington, D.C. He also served as a judge on the D.C. Superior Court starting in 1988. I became a judge at the age of 37, which I think is a little young. And um, my intention was, having been a litigator in the Justice Department for about 12 years or so, you know, when I was selected as a judge, I thought this was it. You know, I've I've reached kind of the pinnacle of my, my career. And I thought I would just, you know, be a judge for the rest of my career. I became a judge at a time when the crack wars um, were really um, you know, infesting Washington, D.C. And I had coming before me as a judge in the D.C. Superior Court this, um, this ocean of young, this wave of young black men who I had to send um, to jail and had to impose these mandatory minimum sentences that I didn't think were necessarily consistent with their conduct. And I burned out after after five years and made a decision to leave the bench, and I became then, you know, the U.S. attorney um, in Washington. After five years, Holder left the bench to become the U.S. attorney in Washington, D.C. But one of the key lessons that he says he took from his time on the bench is the idea that there isn't a tension between judicial diversity and judicial excellence. In fact, he says the two go hand in hand. You know, judges are supposed to decide things only on the basis of the facts and the law. But we'd be naive to believe that people don't bring their life experiences um, to the job. I mean, I was a judge for, uh, you know, for five years. And I I dare say that my experiences as an African-American man gave me slightly different perspectives than some of my, um, my white colleagues. Beyond making the bench more representative of the population as a whole, Holder says his other big hope is that over time it will become less important which president nominated a particular judge, and that instead of being an Obama judge or a Trump judge, they could simply be known as federal judges. But this broader idea that a judge's personal feelings or background can play a role in how they interpret the law is also very controversial, especially among conservatives. Welcome. It's good to have you back, Judge, and your family and friends and supporters, and I hope we'll have a good day today. Look forward to dialogue with you. During confirmation hearings back in 2009, then-Senator Jeff Sessions went after Sonia Sotomayor for a comment she'd made years earlier that a wise Latina woman with the richness of her experience would, more often than not, reach a better conclusion in a case than a white judge. A philosophy of the law that suggests that the judge's background and experiences can and should, even should, and naturally will impact their decision, which I think goes against the American ideal and oath that a judge takes to be fair to every party. And every day when they put on that robe, that is a symbol that they're to put aside their personal biases and prejudices. What I was speaking about in that speech hearkened back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, which is life experiences do influence us in good ways. That's why we seek the enrichment of our legal system from life experiences that can affect what we see or how we feel, but that's not what drives a result. The impartiality 
is an understanding that the law is what commands the result. But others point out that judicial appointments have always and probably will always have some element to them of selecting judges who are naturally sympathetic to the administration's policies. Stephen Robinson is a partner at Skadden Arps, a major New York City law firm. Prior to joining Skadden in 2010, Robinson also served as a federal judge on the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. He says it's hypocritical to require a judge, white or black, to completely banish their lived experience from their legal interpretations. That just doesn't bear any resemblance to how people actually act in real life. And so as an African-American, having grown up in the projects and poor, you know, neighborhood, when a, you know, when certain people, either lawyers or defendants um, or plaintiffs appeared before me, I had a different reaction to some of them than maybe some of my counterparts did because that looked like the guy I grew up with. A case in point, Robinson says, would be the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Look, the Republicans want to, you know, ramrod a justice on, not because they think she's going to become a, an open book and, and, a, and a tabula rosa on the Supreme Court, but because they think she's going to come with certain views that will affect the way that she rules in cases that matter to them. Robinson says he'd often draw from his personal experience to help him understand circumstantial evidence or how much leeway a defendant should be given to state their case in court or whether or not he was inclined to grant bail. And he says it's precisely these kinds of subtle differences in legal training or experience that support the need to appoint judges from a range of backgrounds. It's important to have women judges. It's important to have black judges, Hispanic judges, Muslim judges, people who come at these issues, you know, with different sexual orientations. I think all of that enlivens not only the decisions of that particular judge, but the whole court. Because when I was on the court, we would every Friday have lunch with the judges and you would talk about your cases. And sometimes some very conservative judges, which I was not, some very conservative judges opened my eyes to a way of looking at a problem that I hadn't before. And I hope I did that for other people. With control of the White House and now a slim majority in the Senate, many progressives are looking to the incoming Biden administration to make diversity a key priority for the federal bench. As Kamala Harris said in her first public address, right after uh, the election was called, uh, black women are too often overlooked. They have the qualifications and they're just overlooked. Trina Jones is a professor of law at Duke Law School. She says the demographic statistics for women and black women specifically mirror the poor representation seen at most big law firms. So when you look at women, women are about roughly 30 percent of the federal judiciary. And when you look at intersectional issues, black women specifically, there are only five black women of 179 sitting judges. Together with Jones, Catherine Smith, a professor of law at the University of Denver, co-authored a commentary in the National Law Journal about the urgent need for the Biden administration to nominate more black women to the federal bench. We just feel like, hey, this isn't an issue of there aren't highly qualified people of color, in particular black women, to fill these positions. It's a short-sightedness or lack of imagination or a lack of political will. And here, here's a source of, of incredibly talented women to look to. 
Smith and Jones also note that in recent years, presidents in both parties, along with the senators who advise on judicial selections, have tended to favor judicial appointees with backgrounds as corporate lawyers or prosecutors, factors which Jones says have contributed to the lack of diversity on the federal bench. Because that pipeline to get one of those positions is so narrow, right? And I think we've fallen into the practice of relying on certain types of credentials, where there are certainly other credentials that would uh, position one to be a very effective uh, jurist. If given the opportunity, President-elect Biden has already committed to nominating a black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court a fact which Catherine Smith says provides a critically important perspective that's been lacking from the highest court for too long. We need to have diversity of perspectives and experiences sitting around that table talking about those issues, and maybe it means that we would be able to not have to take 30 or 40 or 100 years to observe things that seemed normal at one time and realize they were problematic years later. It's because who's sitting around that table based off their experience is making those decisions. And maybe we could get a closer, close the gap between those who are playing and protesting and those who are making the decisions. Beyond the issue of the Supreme Court, some say that the Trump administration's imprint on the judiciary has been slightly embellished, both by the administration itself and by the president's critics. The Trump administration certainly nominated and appointed a large number of judges for a single term. Um, They did not set the record. Um, The record was actually set by uh, uh, Jimmy Carter in terms of percentage of sitting judges nominated in a single term. Jonathan Adler is a professor at the Case Western Reserve School of Law, where he teaches courses in constitutional and administrative law, in addition to writing a lot about judges. He says the incoming Biden administration will have plenty of their own court vacancies to fill, both through retirements and as judges reach senior status, a designation that kicks in for judges 65 years old who've also served at least 15 years on the bench. Likewise, Adler says the degree to which Trump's appointments represent an existential crisis for the courts is severely overblown. While it's certainly true the Trump administration prioritized judicial philosophy, they prioritized judicial philosophy that's you know quite mainstream, um, and I don't think that we're on the verge of some judicially driven revolution. Adler agrees that many of the legal credentials used in the past to select nominees have tended to reinforce the court's lack of diversity. Ironically, he says, the Trump administration's willingness to look beyond some of those qualifications could also be used by the Biden administration to broaden the pipeline of diverse judges, too. Uh, The Trump administration has pushed against some of the types of qualifications that have been traditionally demanded. It has been willing to nominate younger people than most of its predecessors, and it has been willing to look at uh, credentials beyond you know, being partners in major law firms and things like that, uh, look beyond uh, the district court bench, for example, in making uh, appellate nominees. And in some respects, those precedents, if followed by the Biden administration, will actually make it easier uh, for the Biden administration to increase the diversity of the federal bench, uh, because it will, you know, taking those sorts of um, precedents into account, Uh, should expand the range of, of potential nominees. 
Last month, President-elect Biden sent a letter to Democratic senators asking them to recommend candidates for judicial nominations in their states and to prioritize potential picks who served as public defenders and civil rights lawyers, professions that tend to be underrepresented on the federal bench. When we look at the circuit courts more broadly, you know, under the Trump administration, um, you know, one circuit in particular jumps out because it's all white. That's the Seventh Circuit, which obviously covers Wisconsin, Illinois and Indiana. Lena Zwarnstein is the senior director of the Fair Courts program at the Leadership Council on Civil and Human Rights, which represents the views of a coalition of civil rights organizations. She says Trump's remake of the courts is most notable at the circuit court level, the level of the federal judiciary directly beneath the Supreme Court. For instance, President Trump has filled 10 vacancies on the Ninth Circuit, the hugely influential California-based appellate court that Trump's often complained is too left-leaning. But then you look at other circuits, like the Eighth Circuit. There is only one woman who is an active judge on the Eighth Circuit, only one judge of color. So um, it really is um, super important that we are paying attention to, um, you know, our African-American candidates and the entire pipeline. But it's vital that it really be more transformative. And we look at this holistically, but also very intentionally every time that there is a vacancy. With Democratic control of the Senate, pressure now mounts on 82-year-old Justice Stephen Breyer to step down and make room for President Biden to fulfill his campaign promise to appoint the first black woman to the Supreme Court. Following the deaths of George Floyd and others, Zwarnstein says the Supreme Court will play a central role in the lives of communities of color as calls grow for the high court to weigh in on issues such as police reform, qualified immunity, and voting rights. And that marks the end of the Black Lawyer Speak series. If you enjoyed these episodes, please help us get the word out, either on social media or by rating and reviewing the podcast online. Uncommon Law was produced by myself, Adam Allington, along with Madison Alder, Lisa Hellum, and Marissa Horn. Josh Block is the executive producer of Bloomberg Industry Group Podcasts. Additional editing for this episode came from Seth Stern. Again, thank you for listening. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, water pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species, renewable energy, super fun, asbestos, recycling, lead, mold, radon, stormwater. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join me, David Schultz, on the Parts Per Billion podcast every Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.